My name is William Chernoff, and today on the Rhythm Changes podcast, I spoke with Emily Wood. Emily describes herself as a scientist, but she's also a wonderful musician who left a big impact on me by mixing folk music and jazz. We contrast together folk music traditions with other ways that music has been taught, and she offers an in-depth scientific perspective on how musicians communicate and how their brains work. She's currently a post-grad student at McMaster University. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. So, Emily, I found that your goal, if I had to sum it up from what I saw, is actually a quote that you said in the video that you made recently for the McMaster University School of Graduate Studies, which was, you kind of said your goal was to understand how musicians coordinate to communicate. Is that kind of accurate, or how else would you describe the general aim of all this research you're doing? Right. Well, I would say that my overall aim is to understand why we even have music in the first place. It is such an interesting question. Um, you know, there's so many humans all over the world and um, we all love music so much. It's almost something that defines being a human. Um, we spend so much resources on music and it has such powerful effects over our mood. We can manipulate our mood using music. Uh, it brings us together. It helps us form bonds and groups and community communities. So these are all questions. Um, they're actually mysteries, in fact. Um, why why humans love music so much? Um, and then more specifically, in that video you're talking about, I was uh, looking at answering a very specific uh, question, which is how do musicians even play together <laughs> in the first place? Um, because if you think about it... Um, Playing music is not a trivial task at all. It's really, really complicated. Um, uh, to play music by yourself, you have to move your fingers to exactly the right place at exactly the right time on your instrument to produce a, a, a melody or a tune. Um, but then if you think about ensembles of musicians, um, they don't have to just do that by themselves anymore. They have to coordinate it at exactly the same time as all the other musicians. Um, and they do this so precisely. It's so amazing. It's down to the millisecond. Music is so temporally precise. Um, so what does that mean? Well, it means that their brains are not reacting to the sounds of each other because there's not enough time to react. Um, it means that their brains are actively anticipated in advance how the other musicians are playing order to plan their own motor movements and coordinate at exactly the same time as them. So uh, for my PhD, um, one line of research I'm doing is looking into how musicians are actually able to do that. I know that you're talking about musicians in the third person here, but I definitely wanted to explore your own musicianship a little bit here. And I want to get you to take us back through your background a little bit. But I guess before that, I'm curious now that you're in this academic setting at McMaster, how much your musician's background actually comes into play, whether you use that in your work often or if it is part of your background that isn't as immediately in play while you're doing this research? Right. That is a great question. And this is actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, I think um, one of my greatest strengths as a scientist is my background in music. And it's my background in music that informs all the decisions I make as a scientist. It informs what questions I want to ask. It informs how I ask those questions and how I design my research studies. And I think I couldn't design the research studies that I do if I did not have this background in music. Um, so, so absolutely, it, it's so important. It's so important to have musicians involved in the scientific uh, process as well. And just real quick, in the particular uh, school environment or the particular lab, not sure of the exact term being an outsider to the academic world, but are you one of many people with musical backgrounds? Do you have a couple of musical peers or are you one of the only 
musicians coming into this area because you do study things related to sound and, and music. And I'm curious how prevalent that is where you are. Yeah, no, that's a great question. In our field of music perception and cognition, there's actually a lot of musicians who are, um, you know, they're scientists and they're also musicians. So it's really a great, um, it's a really great field to be in, um, a great collaboration between the sciences and the arts. Um, yeah, a, a lot of my friends are very great, uh, great musicians like um in my video that you mentioned uh, from McMaster, uh, I'm playing with my roommate Conrad, and he's an amazing bass player, and he he studies uh, music perception as well. So it's really great uh, to be surrounded by like-minded peers. Yeah, and you play piano. You've expressed yourself as a composer, performer. I associate you the most with fiddle music culture and I know a little bit personally but please take us back through your own music education and learning growing up in British Columbia sure yeah I would be happy to so oh man just going back very very far in my past um when I was a kid I was enamored with music Uh, I thought there was nothing greater than music and this is when I was about four or five years old I I remember hearing um, a Vince Guaraldi tune, Linus and Lucy. <laughs> I don't know if you know that one. It's from the Charlie Brown Christmas. I heard that as when I was four or five, and I just thought, wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. I would like nothing more than to be able to play this. So I told my parents, I want to be able to play this song. And they told me, well, you can't just play that song. You know, We can put you in piano <laughs> lessons, and you can uh, learn learn music and eventually you'll get there and learn that song. So I said, okay, I want to do that. Um, So I started off by taking piano lessons when I was five years old. And um, yeah, I just loved it from the very beginning. I remember um, one of my favorite things to do was to just play the piano. Um, And soon after that, um, I started taking violin lessons as well. I started with the Suzuki method, uh, which is a really interesting uh, way of learning music. Uh, it's really um, based a lot on ear-based learning, which I think is so important for kids learning music. So so although I did enjoy learning uh, with the Suzuki method on the violin, I didn't feel as connected to the violin as I did to the piano. <laughs> and I've thought about this a lot of why why was I so drawn to piano over the violin? Um, I just remember being five years old and or, or six, I, I can't remember. Um, I was just a young child playing violin and I just hated how I sounded. <laughs> um, I was playing out of two. There was something wrong with the sound. It wasn't quite right and I didn't like it. And I asked my... Um, teacher Michelle Bruce to put cotton balls in my ears while I played so I didn't have to (laughs) listen to myself so that's kind of funny I was just so sensitive to music from such a young age um so so yeah I continued playing violin uh and piano while I was a kid and eventually um we got introduced to um the fiddle community and fiddle groups. There's such a prominent fiddle community on the Sunshine Coast in BC, where I'm from. Um, So I ended up joining this fiddle group with a bunch of other uh, children. I was probably around eight or so at the time. And I did love being in the fiddle group, but I wanted to get on the piano. That's always been the piano for me. Um, So I started off on fiddle uh, playing in these fiddle groups on the fiddle, and um, eventually uh, I had an opportunity to take over the piano part in our uh, fiddle group. So I'm trying to think when this might have been. Um, probably a little bit later. Probably uh, when I was like a preteen or so, I I got the chance to go on the piano and start accompanying the fiddle group, and that's what I loved. That felt right to me. I felt like I was in my place. Um, when I got on the keys. Um, And from there, it just kind (laughs) of skyrocketed. Um, I played in fiddle groups throughout my entire, uh, the the rest of my, um, I guess, childhood and 
teenagehood, I suppose. I played all through high school. Um, we rehearsed every Friday night. <laughs> uh, as a teenager, that, that's a difficult thing to do, but um, we, we did it, and it was so much fun. It was such a great community. Um, yeah, we even had a chance to go to Scotland with our fiddle group. We were the coastering fiddlers on the Sunshine Coast. Um, we went to Scotland in 20, uh, I believe it was 2010, and that was kind of the pinnacle of my, my experience um, as a youth um, growing up. Um, it was so great to go to Scotland, play traditional music with, with other like-minded folks, uh, make connections, uh, find lifelong friends. Um, it was a great experience. Yeah, there are a lot of things that I'd love to touch on there because half of it is quite familiar and then half of it is really fascinating and unknown to me. But maybe in reverse order here, if you go back to Scotland, um, could you expand just a bit on why you went there, what the attraction was and the event that you participated in while you were there and what it took within your own community there on the Sunshine Coast to get you there? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, we went to Scotland to participate in the Aberdeen International Youth Festival. So this was a festival that was held annually in Aberdeen, and they invited in youth groups from all over the world. Um, it was really amazing. We met people from Romania, from Germany, uh, from so many other amazing places. Um, so so all these groups from all over the world would meet together in Aberdeen and um, everyone would play music. Each group would play. We would get a chance to interact with everyone. We would have a chance to jam with them. We put on showcases uh, for the community in Aberdeen. It was really an uh, amazing, amazing experience to have. Um, now, we couldn't have got there without the support of the community behind us. Um, so I remember in the Fiddlers, we did a lot of fundraising to to get ourselves um, over to Scotland. And so we were off playing and fundraising all the time. But honestly, uh, we were so lucky to have such a, a great community behind us. I don't think we could have made it there without their support. So I started to really dig into music at a similar time to you in the early teens but I came to it in a secondary school band class, jazz band environment primarily. And the way that we would learn music often would be that we would receive the notation, the sheet music from the teachers. And as a group, we would blast through the charts for the first time, for the second time, figure out what we needed to practice, maybe go home and practice it or maybe not and just iterate on running through the charts. But fiddle music education in the kind of group like the Coastering Fiddlers is delivered in a very different way. And I think that people who haven't participated in something like a fiddle group don't know about this particular learning by ear environment and what that interaction actually looks like between the teacher and you. And I thought you would have a really fascinating perspective on that because you're such a product of this environment, but now also you're a music scientist or a sound scientist. What can you tell people who haven't been in a fiddle group before about what does that look like? What does it look like to learn fiddle music in a group like that? Okay, I'm so glad you asked that because I feel like, right, this idea of ear-based learning compared to visual sheet music traditional approaches is one of the topics I'm most interested in as a scientist. And it's because specifically of my background, um, I grew up as an ear-based player. Um, well, to be honest, I grew up with both ear-based and traditional-based uh, music, but I was always so drawn to that ear-based approach. So for anyone who doesn't know um, about uh, traditional style uh teachings uh, in the fiddle community, um, we don't use sheet music to learn fiddle tunes. Uh, everything is learned by ear. So to do this, uh, uh, what, um, what we do is we would, you know, we have a teacher 
teaching a tune. And what they will do is break up that tune into small chunks. So it might be a two-bar chunk of the tune or a one-bar, depending on the level of, of the students. And they would just play that one chunk to the students. And then the students, you know, they would have to repeat it back on their instrument. So they would have to fig- the- listen closely to what they heard and then try to replicate it on their own instruments. So, so there's two ways you can do this. So one way is just listening with your ears and figuring out how to play that on your instrument. And the second way is by looking at the teacher and kind of looking at their fingers and using that to help you uh, find the notes on your own instrument. Um, And as time goes on and you get more used to this style of teaching, the less you kind of need to look at the teacher to do it, and the more you can just do it based on your ear. So so once the teacher gives you that first chunk, um, and once you get that chunk, they'll then give you the next two-bar chunk or so, and then you work on the next two-bar chunk, and then once you get that, you kind of put the the two chunks together and you play, play that all together. And then you kind of work through the entire tune in that regard until you finally have the whole thing under your fingers and you didn't need to look at sheet music once in order to do that. Is there anything that you have read in academic literature since then that suggests whether or not this is better as a method of education or better as a way to make the student remember the music? Do you have your own perspective to share maybe or do you have other sources now that you're into the research that make a suggestion about what is better or worse about these approaches that you're talking about? Yeah, well, to be honest, uh, one of the biggest problems in the field of music perception and cognition is that it is just so focused on classical music. Basically, all of what we know about how the brain processes music is using classical music paradigms. Um, you know, which is important to understand classical music. It's so complex how we're able to play this and how we're able to perceive this. But if you think about it, something is really backwards about that. If you think back, you know, think back thousands and thousands of years into our evolutionary history as humans. There's evidence that humans were playing music 35,000 years ago. Like, that's just amazing to me. It blows my mind. This is an ancient, ancient behavior um, 35,000 years ago, people were so far away from classical music. In fact, we probably didn't have any way of notating music that hadn't been invented yet. So any musical behaviors um, that we had back then were all ear-based, is, is my hypothesis. Um, so there's something kind of more ancient about ear-based types of music. It's more interactive Um somewhere down the line we came up with a system of notating music and once we got that system of notating it's like oh great we don't have to rely on our ears anymore now we can make these intricate compositions write them down and pass them down that way and it's almost like you know we loved that so much we thought it was the only way and and western music decided this is what we're going to do, and this is the way to do it, and we don't need to rely on our ears anymore. And in a way, that was important because it led to all these great compositions, um, thoroughly composed orchestras and symphonies and string quartets and whatnot. But um, at the detriment of that, we started to stop relying on our ears but if you think about why we even developed music, musical behaviors in the first place, like you can't take away that, that, that ear-based learning component of it. And I just think it's something that's completely ignored in our field right now. In fact, um, there's basically nothing out there about differences between <laughs> uh, visual traditional music education-based approaches versus, uh, compared to these more ear-based Uh, learning approaches. And that's actually something I want to study uh, for my PhD. Um, I think it would be so interesting to compare children's memory for music, depending on whether they learned it with a traditional music education approach from a score, compared to this more ear-based learning where they are actively learning it from a teacher without any notation involved. Um, 
I could go on and on about this. <laughs> you may, if you like. <laughs> um, yeah, so one of my, my biggest perspectives as a scientist is this idea of embodied cognition. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. I don't think it's a term you hear out in the general public that much, but it's the idea that um, everything we understand about our brain is rooted in our bodies. So we tend to think about our brains as influencing our bodies. It decides what our body is going to do. And it's like the brain controls the body and that's the way it works. Um, but I don't believe that's the way it works. Um, it's almost like you have to consider the brain and the body as a system together. So the brain can send signals to our body, but our body then sends signals back to our brain and, it, and they operate in this kind of loop together. Um, so we, we shouldn't really be thinking about, you know, just perceiving music with our ears. It's just a purely auditory thing. Um, we perceive music with our bodies and it, this completely makes sense if you just stop and think about it. Like if you're listening to music, you're tapping your foot, you're humming along, you're showing it on your face. It's not just your auditory system that perceives music, it's your motor system. And that's what the science shows us. Um, when we listen to music, it activates our motor system, even if we're not moving at all. And I think that is very revealing. Um, we really, I think people in my field specifically need to start uh, changing the way they think about how, how we perceive music and, and realize how it is grounded in our bodies. And I think this was a bit of a digression, but this is why I think ear-based learning is so important. When you learn by ear, I think um, you're immediately grounding it in your body um, and you're immediately memorizing it and associating it with the motor movements. Whereas if you're stuck with the sheet music, your motor movements start to rely on that visual cue. So you're not embodying the music to as great as a degree as if you learn it by ear. And think about language. There's so many parallels between music and language. It's, it's very amazing. And scientists almost think that, you know, music and language kind of co-evolved potentially as communicative systems. But one, the language kind of branched off to be more of a uh, informative uh you know, direct style of communication, whereas music kind of was more to uh, communicate emotions. Um, it's kind of the idea some some scientists have. Um, but anyway, they're they're both communicative systems humans have. Yeah, if you think about how babies learn language, they don't just they don't you know go through infancy to the age of five years old not producing any language at all and then only learning it based off of written text when they're five years old. That's not how it works. They're immediately immersed in language from when they are born and they start to imitate the sounds they hear and they're actively producing language and interacting with people and, and their caregivers are teaching them. Um, and this is all based on ear. They're not using any written text at this point. Um, your ability to use written text doesn't even develop until much later. Um, but then you look at music and look at the system we have in our society. So the system is you wait to put your kid in music until they're, they can read music. So you wait until they're five, put them in music, teach them how to read music, but you're just kind of skipping over this opportunity from from the age of, uh, from birth until five years old, where they could be participating in music um, in the same way that they do with language. Um, so much yeah. to talk about there. So I much know, great I know. Material. <laughs> um, I, I do want to, there's a few things I want to get back to. Some of them are, are related to your academic life now, and some of them are still about fiddle music education. But that last point about being immersed in music from even a pre-literate age is super interesting and seems worthy of striving for. And the only institution I can think of that has done that 
on a regular basis in, in modern society would be church, but that's a specific subset of the population, etc. So I'm just wondering if you have any other thoughts about how that could be done or what kind of things that you could do in society to get people exposed to music right away when they're super, super young. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, immediately, so if you think about infants, um, their primary source of social interactions is with their mothers um, and their fathers as well. But there, there's something special about the mothers. They grew inside the mothers. They have they're physically physio, physiologically bonded uh, with their mothers. What the mother's heart rate was affected the infant. Um, so when they're born, they have this really special connection and. You know, when your infant is born, they don't possess um, the language yet. So how can you communicate with your infant? Well, one of the ways you can communicate with your infant is through song. Um, there's, I'll have some really great colleagues who do some really cool research um, with mother-infant interactions and engaging infants with songs. And what they show is that you can, you can um, calm infants with song. You can direct their attention with song. So with play song, if you want infants to learn about something, if you want them to attend to something, you use a play song. So like these different songs have different functions to help infants' development when they're, when they're so young. Um, and then beyond infancy, um, um, you know, I think music classes are just so important for, um, for, for, for young infants young um, toddlers. Um, so teaching them um, about beats, I think this is so important. The ability to keep in time with a beat. These are just simple uh, things we can be teaching kids, but it doesn't require any written notation at all. We can still teach them how to internalize rhythm as uh, as kids. Um, have them interacting with their, their peers. Um, all of this is just so important for um, social development um not only social development but also perceptual development because we know that the ability to track beats is really important for developing linguistic abilities kids who have better rhythmic beat keeping abilities tend to learn language faster or do better at acquiring language so we could really be helping our young children by by engaging them in musical activities from a young age yeah, I know that in some of your papers that you are a co-author on, you've talked about how you've dealt with whether or not the people that you're conducting the experiment with are musically literate or apt or trained. And that's that's super interesting. I definitely want to go there. I have two kind of more selfish questions, I guess, or <laughs> relate more sure. towards where I'm at. And I would love to hear your thoughts and I, when you were just finishing off that thought, I made a connection to my own story a little bit because I was, uh, I was a highly gifted child who accelerated very, very fast academically and played basically no music until I was 13. Um, although I did have my mom sing a lot of Beatles songs out of a songbook and play guitar with me while I was a young kid, so I got that. Um, but I was for example, very advanced linguistically, but I had no musical training. And I did feel like I started and went from zero to 60 in music really quickly. And I'm wondering if I reversed what you just described a little bit, but did the same thing where like you're saying, if you train in music, you'll be better linguistically. But like, did I cross over into music effectively because I was accelerated linguistically? I don't know. That's a great question, and it kind of touches on the big uh, nature versus nurture debate. Uh, this is a huge kind of issue in our field. So when we look at psychological phenomenon, do we attribute it to the person's genetics or do we attribute it to their environment? Um, and I think that's it's a false dichotomy. I think it's usually the answer is usually always an interaction between your genetics and your environment. So... So musical abilities, so having good auditory system, the ability to pick out different pitches, the ability to keep a steady beat, these are all something that are probably genetic abilities. Um, so you're born with some sort of 
ability, uh, musical aptitude, say, some sort of musical aptitude. Um, so there's so some people argue that people who are born with higher musical aptitude probably seek out musical environments. Um, so so they so maybe if you have a really good auditory system that makes you seek out musical environments it makes you seek out piano lessons group music lessons and then once you're in those group music lessons and you are in these musical environments you get a further boost in those music perception abilities as a function of the environment you're in so so your genetics interact with your environment to give you these really great musical abilities um, later in life now think about maybe someone who has a bit lower abilities in musical aptitude. Maybe they don't seek out musical environments because of that. So they don't get any musical stimulation throughout their life. Now, if they had had musical stimulation in their life, it could have really helped their musical aptitude abilities. They could have probably could have gotten even better than those folks who already had good abilities to begin with, but they just never had that environment because they never suck it out, whatever the right word is. They never seeked it out um, uh, just based on their temperament. Um, so so it's so it's really hard to disentangle these kinds of questions. In your case, you were probably someone with a really high innate music aptitude, but you weren't exposed to the environment that, that could have boosted them forward until later in your life, but they were always there. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's basically what that's been the the working idea for sure from from my perspective and i i don't regret any of it at all because when i came to music in my teens it was like so my thing it wasn't something it mm-hmm. wasn't at all something that i was doing just because i had taken lessons as a kid or anything which would have been awesome too probably like you're saying but and when i got there it was like this is me and this is me growing up you know yeah you 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 probably always had those abilities but you just didn't have the environment to really uh to nurture them until you were later on. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting how, I think it's super interesting how um, our, um, I guess our temperament and our environment interact. Okay. Now I've got a couple of questions where I'm going to bring in my own handful of years of work experience in the fiddle music education space. Um, I have been involved with a fiddle music program that relies a lot more heavily on notation than yours was. And anecdotally, I would say that there is less memorization. There's less retention in, in the groups that I saw versus what I perceive from my interactions with the Coast String Fiddlers Association or other more traditional community fiddle groups. And do you perceive that too have you seen this and does it does it corroborate what you were saying about the importance of ear training right um yes so i think um if you learn a melody by ear you you have to embody it you can't rely on sheet music so i think there is stronger learning from ear ear based learning um but that's not to say like you know when you get older and you're able to read sheet music and you're able to play by ear you're able to do both um i think each each has pros and cons um i think maybe the biggest pro of sheet music is that you could probably get playing the tune faster because it's written down you can just play it right so you can just play the tune right away so i think a lot of the time in fiddle groups when they use sheet music it's just to kind of speed things along a bit and I get why they do that. Like I've been in week-long workshops where, you know, we we don't know any of the material at the beginning of the week and we have a concert by the end of the week. So we have to learn the material fast. So we bring out the sheet music in that case. And like, I get that. Yeah. So sheet music can get us playing faster, but we're not really embodying those melodies if we're just reading it off the sheet music. Our motor commands are just a response to what we're seeing in front of us. It's not something that's rooted grounded in our bodies like it is when we learn it by ear so so that would be the pro of sheet music um the pro of learning by ear um like i said is that your performance will probably be better because everyone has internalized the tune and once you have internalized it you're not stuck you're not stuck with that sheet music and you're able to open up and actually start interacting 
with the musicians around you, um, interacting with the accompanist, uh, accompanists, and, um, and, and that's what brings a performance alive, right? If you're watching, like I, I was watching some videos of the, the North Shore Celtic Ensemble lately. They just put out that video. And if you look at them, the kids, they're looking at it. They're having a good time. They're looking at each other. They're moving. I don't think they would be able to do that if they were stuck looking at their sheet music. I have tried to teach music by ear in a fiddle group setting before. And I've been very bad at it. And there's a particular reason why. And I think you would have some serious insight into this. I think there's something special about the particular cadence of the playing and replicating call and response thing that you described earlier with the teacher and the instructor. I think I've never gotten it right. And that's why the flow of me teaching a tune by ear has never been correct. And so I've noticed that teachers who do this really well when they play that one chunk of a phrase, there is a very particular amount of time that elapses between they play their phrase, they finish their last note, there is a silence of a very certain length, and then the entire ensemble of students responds at the same time. And I've always thought that was so amazing. I've never never really had an opportunity to dig into that more. It, what, are, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I think I, I thought of two things while you were talking. So um, one thing is the length of the chunk you decide to give the students and then also the amount of time that passes after you finish the chunk when the students start playing their chunk after. So so starting with the, the size of the chunk. Um, so So how much information do you give students to learn? Uh, learn by ear. So... So I think this is limited by our memory capacities as humans. So, so um, we think of this system called our working memory. And our working memory is pretty much the system we use to hold information when we're trying to figure out how to do things like playing a phrase. So you want to give them the exact right amount of information that they can hold in their working memory. Because if you give them a chunk that's a bit too long, they can't hold that all, that information in their working memory and they, they can't figure out how to play it. And then if you give them too little, it's too easy for them, right? So you want to find that exact right chunk that's just, just challenging enough for them, uh, but it's not too challenging. And I think it really depends on your students. Like if they're younger, obviously you need shorter chunks. Uh, if they're more advanced, you give them longer chunks. So figuring out the exact right length is very important. And, and there's no research on this at all. Um, that's something else I could consider doing <laughs> um, to help help come up with the ad- ideal amount of information to present students to learn by ear. And I've experimented with this a bunch with my piano students. I with every single piano student I've ever had, I always try to teach them something by ear. Um, so I've played around with different chunk lengths, and this is kind of how I came to this <laughs> conclusion, I guess. Um, so, so that's one thing. Uh, and then the other thing is um, coming up with kind of a scheme of how everyone's going to repeat back the chunk. So this is more specific to group settings. So, uh, so I never really uh, did this in my... my um, piano lesson settings but in a group so say a teacher gives a chunk one two three four and then the students all come in and repeat it back um so sometimes it's intuitive sometimes the students just decide by themselves uh, what makes sense for them to uh start playing their chunk altogether but as a teacher if if you notice that um it's ambiguous when the students should repeat back the chunk they hear, you could just lay it out for them. You can just say, all right, so after I play this chunk, we're going to wait X number of beats, and then you're all going to uh, repeat it back. And if you establish that framework, it kind of gets everyone in sync together. That's kind of what I talked about before. Everyone coordinating, everyone anticipating when everyone else is going to play. Um, It it helps uh, bring the group together. I love how you brought it there because this is what you call body sway interactions. So just keep going on that. What else have you learned about this? Uh, well, that is a, a great topic. So I will preface it by saying um, we've only studied body sway so far in classical um, ensembles. And like I said before, um, 
our whole field, pretty much everything we know is based on classical musicians. And you already know that I think this is very problematic because I don't think these are the conditions under which humans played music 35,000 years ago. So if we really want to understand where music came from, why we even have music as a behavior, we kind of have to study the conditions under which we think music started out as. And it's certainly not as classical music, I think. Um, I think um, studying things like traditional music and these ear-based approaches are a better clue than than classical is. Uh, Anyway, so we were talking about um, body sway in classical, (laughs) highly trained classical musicians. Um, Right, so... So like I said, um, yeah, playing music, like it's just an incredibly amazing feat. Like it's amazing that musicians are even able to do this. Um, and if you think about classical music, um, emotional classical music, the beat isn't like the super steady thing. It's really expressive. The, the vibrato, the speeding up, the slowing down, um, that's part part of the music um and that's probably the thing i find most fascinating about classical music is so how do musicians decide how is this piece going to move in an expressive way um and what if one musician's idea about how this piece should go is different from the other musicians how do they negotiate this interpretation together um so uh so in my lab at McMaster, at um, the live lab, we have this really awesome opportunity to study um, study this uh, by looking at how musicians move when they play. So um, if you haven't heard of the live lab, it's an awesome concert hall slash research lab um, all in one. Um, so it's, it's like a naturalistic performance theater. It looks like any other performance theater, right? You have a stage and seats, but it's equipped with this, uh, technology that can, uh, allow us to measure lots of interesting things. So, um, so specifically for this body sway work, we, um, study how musicians move using motion capture. So we have a motion capture system in the live lab with about 25 cameras. So what we do is we, we put these markers on musicians. Um, we put them on their heads and shoulders and wrists, and then we record them with these 26 cameras while they play. And this allows us to create 3D models of exactly how the musicians moved when they played. And then, okay, so we can record how they move. So that allows us to ask some research questions. Um, So how do musicians move when they're trying to learn how to play unfamiliar music together? So when they have a piece they've never played before, they don't know, you know, how exactly to slow down these fermatas together. They've never played it before. Uh, So how do they communicate with their movements? how to negotiate these ambiguous sections of the music. Uh, and that's that's actually one project I'm currently working on. Um, with my colleagues at McMaster, we collected a motion capture of a string quartet before COVID hit, thankfully. So we already have this data. We can't collect any new data until the restrictions are up. So I'm, I'm just analyzing this data set. Um, and pretty much... Um, the musicians are playing unfamiliar music together and we have them play it several times in a row so we can see how does their body sway change when it is completely unfamiliar compared to when it is more familiar. And um, what I'm finding with this data set is, um, well, I guess I should explain how I analyze it first. So um, this is uh, really cool. I get to learn some really cool mathematical techniques to analyze this data. Pretty much the motion capture data comes out as a time series. So I have a time series from violin one. I have a time series from violin two and from the viola and from the cello. So I have each of their body sways as a time series. So I can take those time series and do this mathematical modeling. So one of the models we do is we can see how is each musician influencing the other musicians. So we pretty much use a technique. It's called Granger causality. It tells us how much violin one is influencing the movements of violin two and how much the movements of violin two are influencing uh, the movements of violin one. And pretty, so we can calculate this between each pair in the group and 
Uh, we can average those measures to get an overall measure of influence uh, between each member in the group. Uh, so what we're finding is that when the piece is most unfamiliar, when they don't know how each other are going to play, they're influencing each other more. There's more reciprocal influence between all these members of the group. And then when they know the piece a bit better, they know how each other are going to play these ambiguous uh, parts of the music that slow down and speed up. We see that they're not influencing each other as much. So we're interpreting this as kind of a learning effect um, where, you know, when you don't know exactly what you're going to play, you might rely on each other's movements to help you know exactly when to play it yourself. But as you know the piece a bit better, um, th this drops off a bit in the group. Um, so, so yeah, that's exciting. That's one data set I'm currently working on. And that's how we use it to, to look at this body sway um, communication, if you will, in the group. Is there anything that you would add in this conversation about body sway and folk music, knowing that you don't have to prove your info to an academic level on this podcast? How, what else would you talk about body sway in relation to folk music, fiddle music, or the oral tradition? Right. So if I may speculate a little bit, because we, we haven't uh, tested this yet. Um, yeah, so... That's a great question. I almost think that, you know, we could compare kids who learn music from sheet music, and we could compare them to kids who learn the same music by ear and look at their body movements um, and compare them between those two conditions. Um, and my gut is telling me that, you know, if they're not relying on the music... They have embodied the music that allows them to look at each other more and it allows them to interact with each other more. So maybe we would see greater influence in the ear-based condition compared to if we had the exact same, uh, if we had the same kids learn the same music, but by sheet music instead. I love that in one of the papers you co-authored, this concept of mental practice came up. The practicing of music in your mind, not necessarily playing an instrument, but still deriving a benefit, a learning from doing that. And I have done that a lot. And I, I never hear it come up. But in my teens, a lot of my practicing was done on the bus. I really feel like that. I'm wondering if you've done this too, or if you have any more thoughts on mental practice, which I think is really cool. Yeah, that is a great question. So from what I know, the evidence tells us that um, mental practice can actually help. Um, so if you're stuck in a condition where you don't have your instrument, you can still make progress just from mental pro practice. And I think the way, the only way that we're able to do that is if we have strong motor imagery I think all musicians have very strong motor imagery. By motor imagery, I mean you are able to imagine your instrument with pretty high level of precision. And that's a result of the um, experience you have playing. So based on your experience, you have this really good internal representation of your motor movements. Um, so if you have a good representation, you can work with that representation internally and you can make progress um i remember this is so long ago i haven't even thought about this in years to be honest um uh i remember when i was practicing for my grade 10 rcm exam i had sprained my left wrist um about six months before uh my grade 10 rcm exam although i did split my my exam so I, I was like just technique and just rep in two different sessions so i had sprained it um beforehand so during that time I just did mental practice with my left hand uh, oh sorry no I sorry I sprained my right wrist sorry I'm getting this all messed I sprained my right wrist <laughs> so I could only practice with my left hand and I could not practice with my right hand sorry I, I got messed up there for a second um but I would engage in mental practice for my right hand um and then I would engage in full-on practice with my left hand and honestly I feel like it helped me so much. Like there were certain things I was stuck on with my right hand. Like I would get stuck on these certain passages and I couldn't quite 
phrase them exactly how I wanted to. Then I took like several months off with my right hand. And when I came back after that mental practice, it was almost like the roadblock was gone. Um, so I guess my moral from that story is no matter what setback you have, like try, like it might lead to something positive. So what positive thing could this setback have for you? So you're ready for a little bit more speculation? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say a musician came to you for advice on a practice routine and the musician practiced two hours every day. Do you think based on our exchange there about mental practice and that's full on practice, physical practice for two hours a day, do you think that there there might be a better return to practicing for one hour physically and one mentally because maybe you're going to achieve more focus and you're going to have more superlative uh, physical practice if you don't do it as much and and you reduce the time but try and focus it more? Would there would there be anything to that? That's a great question. And I, I can speculate. Um, I will say that the research does show that physical practice is better than mental practice, but mental practice is better than no practice. Um, so, so just based on the research, you would say, okay, well, physical practice is actually the best. But what I would speculate would be the time that it might be more beneficial to move to mental practices if you have encountered some sort of roadblock with your physical practice. Like, like there's something you're stuck on, and it's almost like writer's block or something. I don't know. Um, uh, something is getting in the way, and you quite, you can't quite overcome that. Um, if you just change what you're doing, change your approach. And one way you could change your approach is move to this kind of mental practice. You might find that you're able to overcome that. You just you needed a jolt, a, a change in your approach to kind of get over that, that hurdle. There's this other quote from one of the papers, which I, I know I can't attribute directly to you, but this is what it ends up saying in the paper when you send it to me. Quote, Although considerable variability in accuracy exists, the vast majority of adults appear to be able to carry a tune, end quote. And I've come across a couple of people over time who just say that they're tone deaf. And what I think internally is, well, I just don't buy that very many people are tone deaf. There's something else going on there. There's something they're saying when they mean that. But I, I don't believe that they're actually not able to sing or carry a tune. So what, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, there's actually a lot of literature on singing and tone deafness. And it's it's so, so fascinating. I want to read more of this literature. I, I can tell you what, what I know from it. And um, yes, yeah, so the vast majority of people can carry a tune. And even if it's, you know, not quite right, like people can get the pitch contours of tunes right so even if they can't you know quite get the pitches the vast majority of adults can at least get the right pitch contour so if they're singing happy birthday they might not be hitting the exact right notes but they're getting the contour right um so um so i think this conception i think this idea of tone deafness like there is true tone deafness but it the occurrence of tone deafness is, is very rare people who say they're tone deaf are not actually tone deaf i think this is a result of society's conceptions of music and it relates back to this idea that we have about um <laughs> scripted music i guess or or you know visual music so so some kids have these good auditory systems and they seek out musical environments and we deem okay those are the musicians they're going to go off and they're going to be musicians and the rest of us are going to not be musicians and the rest of us are going to be audience to the musicians and we create this false dichotomy of musician and non-musician and if you think back 35,000 years ago to our ancestors who were playing music do you think they had a class of people who were musicians and a class of people who were not musicians no music was communicative it was a way for them to all interact with each other and that way there, there was no distinction everyone is musical and that's how i think i think everyone in our society is musical it's just they are taught that they are not musical that's what society is telling them and i just think it's completely backwards and it's a result of our over-reliance on this 
notated kind of music, this Western classical music tradition has kind of led to this, to this false dichotomy in our culture. And I would love to spend my life fighting against it and trying to return music education to something that resembles um, something that might be how we learned music a long, long time ago. So something that happened not quite that long ago was at some point in your musical development, you started to compose as well as play and participate in groups. And I don't know anything about that in terms of what it was like for you. So when did you start composing? What did that look like? And what has your composing been like between then and now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'd say my composing probably started when I was at music school. Um, so I guess I haven't mentioned that yet, but I do have a degree in jazz piano performance at McGill. So after I graduated from high school, I went off when I was 18, I moved to Montreal and I started this degree in jazz piano performance. So, um, yeah, it was probably during this time while I was 18 to 22 or so is probably when I started really composing. I might've dabbled a little bit in high school, but it really started, um, in music school and, um, yeah, I, I composed jazz tunes mostly when I was in jazz school. Like we did have to take composition classes. So like we were expected to bring in a new composition each week. And I remember when I started that course, I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I can do this. Um, but it, I, I, it was a really great opportunity because it made me realize, you know, I could write down any little idea I have and bring it in and they'll, and my class would play it and we would discuss it and it would give me more ideas. It was, it was a great opportunity and it kind of got me in the mindset of just, you know, churning out any idea I had. Um, so that's kind of where I started. Um, and then for fiddle tunes, I also started composing more fiddle tunes while I was in, uh, music school as well. I remember I composed a set of three tunes and I remember I, I brought it um, back to the Sunshine Coast and we have this uh, fiddle camp every, well, we used to have it every summer on the Sunshine Coast and in this summer camp um, we would have something called a trad band um, and in the trad band we, ha we would invite um, youth from probably like 12 to 18 years old to participate and um, or maybe 12 to 20 or so um, and I had a chance to help um, help direct this trad band a few times so and on one occasion I took these three tunes I wrote and I arranged them for this whole trad band so for fiddles a rhythm section drum guitar bass pianos um and we had a wind section too like we had like trumpets and saxophones and trombone um it was such a great experience like bringing a huge group of youth together with all these different instruments and getting everyone to play together so so I loved that. I loved arranging tunes for large bands. Um, and just, and we also played it when we went, or we, I did in Aberdeen for the Aberdeen International Youth Festival. I brought those three tunes to, to a band there and we, we played it together there as well. So, so that was super fun. Um, so I, I got into writing uh, fiddle tunes as well. And um, so so I've written a handful of fiddle tunes. Um, now, I will say that um, around the time I finished my jazz degree, um, I kind of fell out of love with music a little bit. It's kind of sad to say, but um, um, I think I got a little disenchanted by the end of my degree. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think a big reason is just due to my personality being a perfectionist I was in this jazz environment with and my peers were just like amazing musicians and I I felt like I was the least experienced person in jazz in my whole program and I always was practicing to get better and I was never good enough to from my own personal standards that I set for myself um because I wasn't good enough for my standards I, I started slowly associating like my worth as a human being with my playing abilities and that is just such a terrible mental place to be in um you know I wish I could go back and tell myself you know don't, don't do don't <laughs> go down this rabbit hole just enjoy yourself get what you can out of this experience but um 
I got to in my head by the end. So, um, so at the end of my degree, I kind of stopped playing and um, I kind of took a break from composing for a while. <laughs> um, I have to jump in there because it resonates a lot with me. I'm a jazz university dropout myself after having attended for one year. Uh, and I really have been a critic of that environment, uh, trying to find the best things about it and appreciate them, knowing that so many of my friends are in that environment, but also having gone through it in a similar way that you have. And I really grew up in that environment even before university, um, right back through when I was 13. And so any other thoughts that you're willing to share your feelings from that time and your, your brush with that and how you, how you dealt with that are, are welcome for sure. Yeah. I don't think I properly dealt with it until many years after it, um, it ended. And t- to be honest, sometimes I'm still, still dealing with it in a way. Um, it was, it was almost, I don't know. It was devastating to go from being a person who my main drive in life was music. It was my passion. It was everything to me from going from that in high school to going to a person who was sick of music and wanted to just get away from it by the end. Um, It was really hard to deal with that. Just even my like identity as a person was kind of in crisis um, because of that. Um, And and I, and I am the first to admit I didn't deal with it very well at all. (laughs) Uh, I took it really hard and I I let it affect me. Um, so when I graduated, I, I knew that I, I didn't want to be a performer anymore. That's my conclusion when I graduated from music school, um, which part of me, I feel like was the, I mean, it was the right decision because it led to what I'm doing now, which I think is what I'm supposed to be doing. But uh, I know that a part of the musician side of me, uh, it almost like died a little bit um, because of uh, those experiences um, I had. Um, and I feel like I'm just continually trying to get them back a bit. And it's still, it's like, I graduated from McGill in 2014 and it's now 2021. So, so yeah, I guess it's eight years later and, um, I'm still trying to, to nurture the musician side of me because I know it's still there. I haven't been nurturing it for several years and I know it's still there and I know it's still s- strong in me. Um, and I really hope that's one of my biggest, biggest hopes is that I can pick it back up again and have a place for it in my life again. And, you know, I, I, I do do that. Like you saw that video I recently posted, I brought out one of that, that jazz tune I was playing. I, I wrote it while I was at McGill. Um, um, so, so yeah, that's something I'm still working on, to be honest. That's so fascinating that you have this body of compositions from a period of five plus years ago, and that you're still engaging with them today. Because I have the exact same experience where I, I released my first album under my own name last year, and it's full of compositions that I wrote between 2010 and 2016. Yeah, right? It's It's almost like... <laughs> Yeah, I have this like period of my life where it's like the only thing I did was music. And I look back on that now and um, I just want to shake myself. I'm like, wow, that experience was so great. Why did you let it get to you? Why did you let it get to you? But, you know, I, you know, we can't go back and change the past, but, you know, we can still work on it for the future, I suppose. So I feel like I would love to have a better balance of music in my life. I want to Moving forward, I feel like I want to dedicate more time to music again. I feel like I'm in a place where I could enjoy that. The only reason I'm not is because uh, my work, my academic work takes over my life. I'm a a bit of a workaholic, to be honest. Um, I love what I do. um, (laughs) And I love it so much that I'll work constantly on it uh, at the detriment of other things in my life. So, um, But the one thought I had is that, you know, one of my biggest strengths as a scientist is that I understand music. And like I said, most of my colleagues are classical musicians. It's mostly 
like I said, right, all the research mostly is done on classical musicians. So I have this perspective that my, my colleagues don't have. And so I feel like I need to draw on these experiences more to be the best scientist I can possibly be. And that probably means revisiting music and playing more often. I had the very good fortune to get to play music with you once uh, within the last year or so. And just everything that you're expressing was fully on display there. So like you're wondering whether or not you still have it. You absolutely do because there you're able to interpret a fiddle tune with like so much harmonic and rhythmic strength in, in such a unique way. And, and that I've rarely ever heard from anybody else playing that kind of music in a jam and I'm just wondering if uh, you have anything to share about some of the more recent times like that, that you've been playing music with some of our mutual friends here in BC or anywhere where you are right now or what's going on in your music life right now that I could look forward to enjoying from you because I absolutely would. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I feel like some of the people I love playing with most are in BC. Like I have so many great friends in BC who I grew up playing with. And it's almost like, well, I didn't even touch on this, but I also believe music bonds people together. Like think about the people you grew up playing music with. It's just like, almost like all those times you went through together, your friends for life because of that. Any, anyone I played fiddle music with in my life, I feel like I'm friends for life with those people. Um, so every time I go home, to BC, um, I always want to play music with with uh, people from my past. So so I can think of Kieran playing with Kieran on the flute, um, and Jennifer and Jocelyn. I love playing with them uh, so much. So so yeah, it's mostly jamming uh, when when I go visit back at home. But um, yeah, I would love to actually you know work on some music, uh, but. Um, you know, I have lots of ideas brewing in my head, but nothing is put into works yet. But, um, you know, I really hope, I really hope to put something out there one day. <laughs> well, Emily, I'm, I'm a huge fan of everything you're doing. And I just want to say thanks for such a, such a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm always happy to chat about, about these things. And I know how interested people are about music in the brain. And I just want to help share about what we're we're researching in the field with everyone. If you like this podcast, subscribe to get more from wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you really like this sort of thing, visit rhythmchanges.ca and check out our music journalism serving Metro Vancouver, BC. To support us directly, visit patreon.com slash rhythmchanges or click the support us button from the homepage. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on another edition of the Rhythm Changes podcast. Rhythm Changes is a Chernoff Music production.